And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We'll be in verses 30 to 56. And so Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 56. You know, since it's been a few weeks, let me go ahead and give us some context as to where we are. And so, as we know, the Gospel of Mark, it is about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And where we are in the Gospel is where we've recently seen Jesus go to Nazareth. He preached and he was rejected. Then he involved his disciples in ministry as he commissioned them to preach and cast out demons. Well, the thing is, news about Jesus has spread to where even King Herod heard about him. And it's as we heard about that, as we learned about that, we also learned that John the Baptist was beheaded. And this brings us to our text this morning. And so I know we normally stand for the reading of God's word, but we're not going to do that this morning because there is so much text. And so I'm just going to walk through this passage. And so this morning, we'll see that through Jesus' words and deeds, he discloses his identity, that he is the Son of God in human flesh. And so our big idea this morning is this, that Jesus' provision and power testifies that he is God. I'll say it again, our big idea this morning is that Jesus' provision and power testifies that he is God. And in our passage, we have two scenes that we will see. The first scene is we'll see Jesus' provision as he feeds the 5,000. And then we will see Jesus' power over the sea and the wind. And so first, Jesus' provision. Look at verses 30 and 31. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And so the apostles, they return from their missions trip or their missionary journey, and it is testimony time. You see, they tell Jesus about their successful missions trip, how they preached and how they casted out demons and healed the sick. They're pretty much giving Jesus a report that there was good fruit. And so the apostles, they're exhausted. They're exhausted from their work, and they could really use some rest. And Jesus is aware of it, so much so that he says, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. You see, Jesus, he's not indifferent to their fatigue. He didn't tell them to man up, but instead, he cares for them and suggests that they travel to a place of solitude for rest, to be refreshed. Look at verses 32 and 33. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And so they head out for some R&R, and their retreat will be in a desolate place, a secluded place, one like the wilderness. And as, as they were traveling, they were hoping to get some alone time, but folks from all the towns where the apostles ministered, they saw them. They realized where they were headed, and they took off 
to that place on foot. You see, these people, they have heard the apostles preaching. Their appetites for truth may have been wet, and so they want more. They want to be around Jesus and the apostles, and so they take off. Can you imagine thousands of people running through the surrounding villages to get to where Jesus and his disciples will be? You see, friends, I believe this is the first marathon. Well, look at verse 34. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. You see, their plans for rest were interrupted. Their retreat is crowded. They may have, they had an audience who came and they came just for them. And guys, did you catch how Jesus responded? It said that he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them. You see, he didn't respond like how some of us may would have responded. You see, he wasn't angry or irritated that they're not going to get any rest. He didn't complain, and nor did he say that it's time for some me time. But he showed compassion. You see, Jesus was open to interruptions. He wasn't tied down to his own to-do list. Rather, his to-do list is the will of God. You see, this is convicting because... You know, when if God were to interrupt our plans, as good as our plans may be, how would we respond? When God providentially interrupts our plans for his good and our glory, well, for his glory and our good, would we respond the same way? Will we adjust our will to God's or will we grumble, complain, be bitter? You see, beloved, are we solely focused on our will being done or God's will being done? May we learn from our Lord and follow his example. It says that he looked at them and had compassion on them. Y'all say compassion. See, this word in the Greek means that he is moved with pity at their suffering. The deepest and innermost part of his being is affected. And the reason he responds with compassion is because Jesus is compassionate. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when God revealed himself to Moses, the first description he gives of himself is that he is the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is compassionate because Jesus is Lord. The Lord who revealed himself to Moses is here clothed in human flesh. You see, Jesus is compassionate. He is both gracious with pity. Now the question is, what provoked his compassion? And I would say it was their suffering. You see, Jesus, he responds to suffering with compassion. If you read the Gospels, you will see this over and over again whether it's physical suffering of disease or starvation, suffering from grief over someone's death or suffering spiritually, he responds with compassion and he's moved towards action. You see, Jesus doesn't pit different types of suffering against themselves and neither should we. We should reflect him and respond to all suffering with compassion and be moved to action, whether it's relational suffering 
over grief of the loss of a loved one, physical suffering or spiritual suffering. You see, we should have compassion on those who are spiritually lost, then it moves us to share the gospel. We should have compassion on those who are in physical need, and it should move us to try to meet those needs. We should have compassion on those who are grieving, and it should move us to weep with them, to pray for them, to comfort them, and seek to serve them. You see, Jesus, he responds to suffering with compassion. And in this passage, their suffering is spiritual. And so he ministers to them by teaching. Did you see it? He says that they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see, they were spiritually abandoned, not well instructed, not well shepherded. Their religious leaders were terrible guides. They didn't comfort and encourage and tend to the sheep. They burdened them. The very ones who were supposed to lead the flock has left them spiritually. And it leads Jesus to have compassion. He says they are like sheep without a shepherd. You see, the reality is sheep need shepherds. Because, and the reason is because sheep are dumb, defenseless, directionless, and are in grave danger if they have no shepherd. You see, sheep go astray and can easily become prey. You know, sheep are very weak, which is why when you think about sports, no sports team has a sheep as their mascot. Like, for real. It's just not happening. They're not predators. They're prey. They're not fierce. They're weak. And they need shepherds. And the thing is, before we laugh, the reality is Scripture likens people to sheep. The people of God in Scripture is referred to as sheep. You see, we are sheep. And the people of God needs good spiritual leaders as shepherd needs sheep. And sheep need, sheep need shepherds. And Scripture reveals this. Numbers chapter 27 verse 17 makes known that Moses was about to die and he prayed for God to raise up a spiritual, he raised, raised up a leader for Israel, that they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. Exodus chapter, not Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 34, God condemned the religious leaders for not shepherding the people. And he promised that he himself will seek after his sheep and that he will establish over them one shepherd, David. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. You see, Jesus is the good shepherd who seeks out the lost sheep. He saves the sheep. He leads the sheep. He is the good shepherd that we read about in Psalm chapter 23. And not only that, beloved, the church is referred to as the flock of God, which Jesus purchased with his very own blood. You see, Jesus is the chief shepherd. And in the local church, he has established elders to serve as under shepherds. And the elders are commanded to shepherd the flock of God. Now, we primarily shepherd through the ministry of the word, both in public preaching and in personal counseling as we seek to apply the word of God. You see, sheep needs to be shepherded, which is why we emphasize church membership, because it is dangerous to be a sheep in the flock of God without under shepherds shepherding your soul. And so if you're a Christian and not a member of a faithful gospel preaching church, we would exhort you 
to join one immediately for the good of your soul. Verse 34, he begins to minister to them. He says that, it says that he began to teach them many things. And so Jesus, he shepherded them through teaching. This ministering is through instruction. Look at verses 35 and 36. It says, when it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You see, they're in a desolate place. It's late. People are hungry. So the disciples, they go and encourage Jesus to dismiss the crowd so they can eat. Look how Jesus responded. He said, you give them something to eat. You see, Jesus, he agrees on the situation, but he differs on the solution. He's pretty much telling them, they ain't got to go get food. You feed them. And we have ourselves a little dilemma. This catches the disciples off guard. They're like, whoa, this came out of left field. The disciples, they were stunned because this large group has over 5,000 people. And Jesus has told them to supply the food. Jesus has told them to feed them. And so the disciples, they give a sarcastic and disrespectful rebuttal. They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? You see, 200 denarii, it is about a year's worth of wages, which very well they may not have right now. And even if they did, it wouldn't be enough for everybody to get just a little. So in their mind, they're like, man, how are we supposed to feed them? Look at verse 38. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. You see, Jesus, he tells them to do an inventory check on the loaves of bread. And they check and they find out, they see they got five loaves and two fish. They have insufficient resources. You see, they can maybe feed 10 people, but certainly not 5,000. In their own hands, this is an impossible task. Beloved, have you been there? Can you relate? Have you been in similar situations where one that is too much for you, where a favorable outcome is seemingly impossible? When you are confronted with your own limitations and insufficient resources, and you know that if the situation will be fixed, God must intervene. You see, we must learn just as the disciples are about to learn that though the situation is too much for us and them, it is not too much for the Son of God. You see, in verses 39 through 41, Jesus, he tells them to have the crowd sit in groups. Jesus takes the bread, he prays the blessing, and he gave it to the disciples to serve. And what do you know? There is enough food. Jesus provides food for this large crowd. He's the supplier, and he made the disciples the servers. They kept coming and coming, and there was more and more bread. You see, like a shepherd who feeds the flock, so Jesus feeds the large crowd. He ministered to them spiritually, and now he is ministering to them physically. Now, we don't know how Jesus did it, 
And truth be told, that's not the important thing. But rather, the important thing is that Jesus fed them in this desolate place. You see, Jesus, he turned this desolate place into a golden corral. Look at verses 42 through 44. It says, everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. You see, everyone ate. Not one was hungry. And they all were satisfied. You see, they went from starving to satisfied as Jesus provided for them. And not only that, there were leftovers. Did you see it? They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. You see, y'all, Jesus is a fan of leftovers. (laughs) And we should be too. (laughs) But y'all, don't miss this, though. Jesus has fed over 5,000 people in the wilderness with two fish and five loaves of bread. You see, this is a mighty act that only God can do. It has not been replicated, nor will it ever be. You see, this mighty act is so important that it's mentioned in all four Gospels. And the reason is because this miracle serves as a sign that Jesus is God. You see, this mighty act is an echo of the book of Exodus, of what God did for the Israelites in the wilderness. You see, when God had delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he was with them in the wilderness. God was present with them through the cloud. In Exodus 16, they were starving. There was no food. They were hungry. And what did God do? God provided manna from heaven and fed them and continued to feed them all while they were in the wilderness. Well, in this passage, God is present in the desolate place, but it's not through a cloud. It's in a human body. You see, the very God who provided for the Israelites in the wilderness is present in human flesh and has provided for over 5,000 people. No one would expect to feast in the wilderness, but that's exactly what Jesus has brought about. You see, Jesus did what the saints of the black church would sing about, that God was making a way out of no way. And he still makes a way out of no way. You see, I was reading this and I thought about the story of George Mueller. He's a 19th century evangelist who, he was a 19th century evangelist who ran a children's orphanage. The orphanage was funded solely through financial support. And one night, they were out of money, they were out of food, and they had to feed the children the next morning. And so George and his staff, they prayed. And that morning, the children, they were at the cafeteria, and there was still no food. Next thing you know, there's a knock on the door. A delivery man, his car has broken down. And what he was supposed to be delivering is food and milk. And rather than letting the food and milk go to waste, he asked George Mueller if he could use it. And y'all, it was just enough food to feed the children breakfast that morning. You see, God was making a way out of no way. And I'm sure all of us have personal stories where we were in the wilderness and yet God showed up and made a way out of no way. Many of us probably have written them down to be some sort of stone of remembrance to strengthen our faith, to trust God in the wilderness. 
Well, I would say, beloved, may we not only write them down, but may we share those stories with one another, that it may strengthen our faith to trust Jesus at all times, even in the wilderness, for we know that he is faithful. And so one of the things I would encourage us to do after service is you have fellowship with one another, talk about how God has provided for you in the wilderness to encourage and build us up and pray that we would trust God in the midst of the wilderness, knowing that he is faithful. You see, in this mighty act, Jesus has disclosed his identity through this provision. He makes known that he is the son of God, and this is Jesus. He is the one who meets people's needs. You see, in the wilderness, he met the crowd's most basic need, food. And the reality is, beloved, we have a greater need than food. You see, our greatest need is not food, but it is forgiveness of sins. And beloved, Jesus had compassion on us, and he has met our greatest need, not by becoming a chef, but by becoming a curse for us, bearing the wrath of God in our place and for our sins. You see, Jesus, he is not the server who offers food. He is the Savior who offers salvation. He is the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And we are in Christ. We who are in Christ, we know that he has met our greatest need. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that this is Jesus Christ. He is the compassionate Savior who died for sins. He died for the sins of all who would turn from their rebellion and trust in him. And he resurrected from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death. Salvation is only found in him. And I would implore you this very day to turn from your rebellion and trust in Jesus Christ that you may be saved. You see, Jesus is good. He is merciful and gracious. And if you want to talk more, you can talk to any of the members after service. And beloved, as we think about this passage, as we see how Jesus responded to the crowd, it is instructive for us. You see, Jesus teaches us what it looks like to actually care for people, to know people's needs, and to strive to meet their needs. You see, he did this as he ministered to them both spiritually and physically. He taught them and he fed them. You see, in this passage, we learn that we shouldn't necessarily serve out of our own convenience. We shouldn't serve according to our convenience, but we should serve according to the needs that we see. And we also see that Jesus can do so much more with our little. You see, he can use our limited resources to bless others, whether it's food to feed members and neighbors, or a small home for hospitality, or even a small amount of financial donation towards missions. You see, I would encourage us to not focus on the little, but trust that God can use it to bless others. So may we use our resources to serve others for the glory of God. You see, in this passage, in this scene, we've seen Jesus' provision, and now we will see Jesus' power. Look at verses 45 and 46. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat 
and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. You see, Jesus, he moved with urgency for his disciples to head to Bethsaida. Now, one may wonder, why is Jesus in such a hurry? Well, John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 sheds light, makes known that the crowd saw the sign, and they saw that he is the prophet who is to come into the world. You see, Jesus, he knew the crowd wanted to make him their king by force. So he withdrew to pray. You see, he wants to submit to God's will. You see, his exaltation will not come by human force, but it will come by God after he is humiliated, after he suffers and dies and rises from the grave, then he will be exalted. Look at verses 47 and 48. It says, well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass by them. You see, as the disciples sailed, they were met with strong winds. The wind prevented them from progressing. They were forcefully confronted once again with their own limitations. They are rowing, but they ain't getting anywhere. They are stuck and struggling. In the middle of the night, they're in the middle of the sea in suffering and distress. And as we saw, it says that he was alone on the land. You see, Jesus, Jesus was at the shore, and he sees them struggling and straining. He sees them in their distress. He watches, and he waits. You see, he didn't take his eyes off of them as he waited. The disciples, they struggled for hours from the middle of the night to very early in the morning which was about between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And it was in that very early in the morning, at that time, Jesus drew near to comfort and protect his disciples, like a shepherd who goes to comfort and protect the sheep. And like the disciples, Jesus sees us in our trials. He sees us in our sickness and our suffering. You see, when the winds of life beat against us, as we experience the repercussions of being fallen people in a fallen world, the one who is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, he keeps his eyes on his flock. You see, Jesus, he is not unaware, nor is he ignorant of our trials. He is keenly acquainted with them. And not only does he see us, just as he did for the disciples, he does for us. He draws near to comfort and strengthen and help us. You see, he doesn't leave us alone, but he cares. He's the compassionate shepherd who draws near to protect his sheep. It says that he came toward them. Now, one may wonder, how did Jesus get to them? You see, there wasn't another boat. He didn't swim. He didn't ride on a jet ski. Let's see what he did. It says that he came toward them walking on the sea. You see, he walked on the sea. You guys, we read the prepositional phrase correctly. He walked on the sea. Not in the sea, but on top of it. 
taking step after step after step on top of the water. You see, he did what is impossible for us to do. If you think I'm playing, go to the Mississippi River. Try to walk on top of it. See what happens. I can guarantee you, you'll do either one of two things. You're going to sink or you're going to swim. But there's no way in the world that you're going to walk on top of it because we don't have that kind of authority. But Jesus does because he is the son of God. You see, Jesus, he walked on the sea. He turned the sea into a sidewalk for himself. The waves were like a speed bump for him. The one who spoke the sea into existence and commanded the storm to be still. He has commanded the water to be as hard as cement. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power made the sea uphold him as he walked on top of it. You see, Jesus, he has authority over the sea. And not only does he have authority over the sea, he also has authority over the wind. Guys, did you see that the wind, it blew against the boat and prevented the disciples from progressing? You see, the wind was too much for the disciples, but it was no match for the Son of God. You see, the wind didn't knock him off course. It didn't blow him away. Rather, he cut through it like a piece of paper. You see, he has authority over the wind because he created it, because he is God. And beloved, like the disciples in the boat, the winds of life, they are also too much for us, but it's no match for Jesus. See, the winds of life may beat us up, but they can't keep Jesus from drawing near to us to help us. And so we see Jesus drawing near. And then it says that he wanted to pass by them. Now, that's pretty strange. Like, wanted to pass by them. What's happening here? You know what I'm saying? Like, man, I thought Jesus came to try to help them. And now it's saying that he wanted to pass by them. Is Jesus trying to race them or something like that? Is he trying to pass them by like a runner in a track meet? Not at all. You see, what's happening here is that Jesus wanted to pass by them that they may see his glory. You see, he wanted to disclose his personhood to them. How do I get this? Well, think about this. Just as in the book of Exodus, chapters 33 through 34, Moses asked to see God's glory. And the Lord said that he'd cause his goodness to pass by Moses. The Lord placed Moses in the crevice of the rock, covered him with his hand, and caused his goodness and glory to pass by Moses. So Jesus right here, he wanted to pass by the disciples that they may see his glory. You see, he wanted to reveal himself to them, that he is the Lord, that he is God in the flesh. Look at verses 49 and 50. It says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke with them and said, have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. You see, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. And they were terrified. And the reason why they, saw, they thought that it was a ghost because there was a popular belief that the spirits of the night brought terror. And so they're afraid. And yet, in their fear, immediately Jesus speaks to them. He commanded them to have courage and to not be afraid. 
and he reveals himself to them. He said, it is I. Now, the Greek word for it is I is I am. You see, when, with this phrase, it should have us think about God's self-revelation of himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And so what Jesus is saying right here is that the God who revealed himself to Moses is here walking on the sea. Jesus is making, him, making it known that he is the covenant-keeping Lord, that he is God the Son incarnate. He says, then he got into the boat, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. And so Jesus, he gets into the boat with the disciples, causes the situation to go from calamity to a great calm. And this calmness is a picture of peace that only Jesus can bring. And just as Jesus did, just what Jesus did for the disciples, beloved, he does the same for us. He draws near in our suffering. He tells us to not be afraid but to believe. He reminds us of himself, and he then brings peace. You see, he can bring peace in the midst of the calamity. He has the authority to cause the wind to cease. And the reality is he may do that for us in this life. And if he doesn't, know that he can give peace in the midst of the suffering. And if he doesn't cause the wind, if he doesn't calm the wind in our life, in this life, know that he certainly will one day. You see, one day, all the winds of life will cease. So may we take courage this day and trust in Jesus. You see, as Jesus did all of this before them, the disciples were blown away. And the reason they were blown away is because they missed it. Did you guys see it? It says they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. You see, they missed it. They didn't understand that Jesus has revealed himself to them. They didn't understand that Jesus has revealed that he is God as he fed the 5,000 in the desolate place. You see, if they would have gotten that, then they would have known that he is the Lord of the universe. They would know that he has the authority to walk on water and wouldn't have been astounded at all. They would have trusted. And God, did you see the reason that they missed it? They said instead, their hearts were hardened. You see, they missed it because of their hard hearts. You see, the problem wasn't revelation. It was their unbelief. It was their own fault that they missed it. You see, in this part of Jesus' ministry, they are no different than Jesus' opponents. You see, they followed Jesus, and they were learning about Jesus. But there was so much more about Jesus that they had to learn. You see, though their hearts were hard here, their hearts wouldn't remain hard. They'd soon know Jesus for who he truly is, and they would go and proclaim that he is the author of life. You see, in this scene, what Jesus does for the disciples, beloved, it is instructive for us. You see, as his people, we should respond similarly when we see members struggling, in distress, 
suffering from being hit by the winds of life. You see, we should see them in their distress and have compassion. We should draw near to them. We should get into the boat with them. We should weep with them and pray for them. And we should remind them that Jesus is Lord. We should tell them about the greatness of Jesus. We should tell them about the compassion of Christ in our suffering, the grace of Christ that helps us in our weakness, the comfort of Christ when in distress, the peace of Christ amidst calamity, the power of Christ that saves, and the return of Christ that awaits. You see, we need to remind one another that one day he will cause all the winds to cease and there will be a great calm. We can be sure of it because he came and died for our sins and resurrected from the grave. He saved us from the storm of God's judgment. And he will return just as he promised. So NBC, may we encourage one another in this. And in verses 53 to 56, which I'm not going to read, give a quick summary. They get to shore. The people saw Jesus and they brought all the sick to him. He healed many. And as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen again that Jesus has authority over sickness because he is the Son of God. You see, in this passage, in this section, Jesus' words and deeds reveal his identity, that he is the Son of God in human flesh, that he is the Lord. He is the compassionate Savior, the good shepherd who cares for his flock. He draws near. He brings peace. He brings healing. And he will one day cause all the winds to cease. And there will be a calm that lasts for eternity. Beloved, we are one day closer to that being our reality. May we trust him and long for that day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in your love you sent your son to save us, to redeem us, to reconcile us. Father, we praise you for the compassionate care of the good shepherd. How he draws near, how he ministers, how he provides, how he cares and comforts and strengthens. And so, Father, I do pray that we would trust him continuously, that we would not fear, that we would long for the day of his imminent return when he will calm all the winds, where it will go from calamity to calm and we will be in your benevolent presence for all of eternity. Lord, help us to trust you and await that day with eagerness and longing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, beloved, as we've seen in this passage that Jesus is God the Son incarnate, how he demonstrated his identity through his words and his deeds, well, we will sing of this reality, that Jesus is God in human flesh. So please stand and let's sing of the hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. <laughs>